So we look at the Ten Commands and we look at the Great Command and the relationship that we have between these two is that the reason that we have the Ten Commands is that we fail so miserably in the, the One Great Command. If we did the One Great Command, love the Lord God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we wouldn't need Ten Commands telling us do this, don't do that, and all the rest. But it is because we fail in this one primary command that God has given to us all these other commands so that we can know what it looks like to live a life to the glory of God. In fact, we talked about that, where what is the role of the Old Testament law in the life of the New Covenant Christian? And we saw last week that uh, it, is a, it is a map, it is a muzzle, and it is a mirror. The Old Testament law is a map. It helps us to know and understand the character of God. It helps us to know and understand how do I live my life ethically and morally in a way that pleases God, that brings glory to Him. It is also a muzzle in that it restrains us from being as ungodly and as depraved as we otherwise would be if there was no law and we could just live any way that we wanted to. But it is a mirror, and in this way, I think it is its primary role. It shows us the depth of our own sin. We look into the law of God, we look into the Ten Commandments, and we realize how miserably we have failed God and the depth of our sin before a holy God. And like a mirror that shows us that we're unclean, uh, that mirror is good at doing that, but it's no good at cleaning. Nobody, nobody's dirty says, go get the mirror, I need to clean up a little bit. Uh, Because mirrors don't clean us. We need something that will cleanse us. And it drives us then, the law, to look and see who is there, where can I find righteousness, how can I be clean. And it drives us indeed to Jesus. And we find in him uh, the, 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 the cleanser, the Savior. Now, while loving God is the greatest command... The great command, the first command of the ten is in the first place for a reason. And you're going to find out with me, I think, today why that is. And so we come back to Exodus 20. We are going to go verse by verse through this section of Scripture. And we find here now, again, the context, before I read it, God is there on Mount Sinai. The people of Israel have gathered around there at the base of that mountain. It is an awesome sight. The mountain is shaking. The mountain is thundering. There is uh, a trumpet that is blasting. Uh, It's like a volcano in all of its power. It's just going off. And there is Israel at the base of that, looking up at this power display. And now the mountain begins to speak. And we find it now beginning in chapter 20. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Notice, friends, that God doesn't begin with the first command. He doesn't just say, okay, don't do this, don't do that, don't do that. How does he begin even his giving of the law? It is not rooted in command. It is rooted in relationship, isn't it? Notice again what he says. I am the Lord. And that harkens back, remember, when when God called Moses from this same mountain, from the burning bush, and, and tells him, go, go back to Egypt and lead Israel out. And, and Moses says, if I go back, they're going to want to know who sent me. Who should I tell them sent me? And he said, you tell them that Yahweh sent you. And Yahweh is Hebrew, meaning I am 
Simply that. I am the self-existent, the ultimate reality. You tell them that I am sent you. Yahweh. In fact, maybe say that, you know, because this, this, I, I think many people would say, hey, what's the name of God? Uh, many people would go, God, right? And yet, God has given himself a name. And we probably should know the name of God, don't you think? If we call ourselves followers of God, what is his name? So say it with me, if you would. Yahweh. And some people, yah, you know, they kind of can say it different ways. Probably get a good Hasidic Jew. Maybe wouldn't even say that, actually. They avoid saying the holy name of God. We feel free uh, to do so. Yahweh. I am. Next, he restates... Uh, well, notice that he restates his name then. I am the Lord, your God. There's relationship, right? I am your God. Here we have the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob speaking to the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And he is renewing this relationship just like he did with Abraham to start with. He said, I am going to be your God and I'm going to bless you and all your descendants. And he did the same with Isaac and Jacob. He renews this. It's like a uh, a marriage renewal vow ceremony in a sense here. He renews the covenant that he had made with all of these descendants. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of bondage. And of course, uh, this, this they were very familiar with. These are the same people that had been in slavery in Egypt just a month or two before this. And they had cried out to God and they had experienced the plagues and saw the power of God. And these are the people that saw the Red Sea part and walked across on the dry land and saw the Pharaoh's armies all wiped out. So that part of this was very fresh in their minds, unless they get confused who they are covenanting with. He says, I'm the one who did the plagues. I'm the one that led you out. I am the Lord, your God. So do you see this now before we get into the command? I am the God, the covenant-making God who has brought you out of slavery By the power of my hand and because of my mercy and my grace and my love, this is, this is who I am. This is who is speaking these commands to you. And from that, then he begins the 10 commands. He says the very first one. It's not very long. Okay. It's not very long. Verse three, you shall have no other gods before me. In fact, can we say it together? You shall have no other gods before me. Simply that. Now, it's short, but it is profound. And right away, we're confronted, I think, if we are, if we are, uh, uh, you know, have a basic understanding of Christian theology, we're confronted with a, a dilemma and a question because within that statement, you shall have no other gods before me. Are, are there other gods? Are, are, are there, are there actual other, like God is the main God and then you've got all these other gods and we're not supposed to have any actual other gods that we have before him. What is God saying about, about the, uh, the divine reality? And here's what we know. The Bible makes it clear. There are no other gods. Okay. There are no other gods. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one, Deuteronomy 6, 4. Paul says this in 1 Corinthians 8. There is no God but one. 
So when we look at the first command, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. It, it could, in a sense, you could say, well, that's silly. There's no other God, so I'm good. I can't have any other God before God because there's no other God to have before God. So therefore, let's move on to the second one. I think I fulfilled it perfectly. And what we need to realize is that when God talks about God, little g gods, he is not describing an actual spiritual entity. He is talking about a non-God thing or person that we make God like to us because we look to that thing or that person for the provision and for the comfort and for the help that only God can provide. And so when you read through the scripture, there's all this talk about false gods and idols and all of that. What is it talking about? It's talking about non-gods that we make gods within our own hearts. Now, one of the challenges, I think, in this as well is that we say, okay, well, yeah, we can make gods. And I'm quite familiar, and maybe in our mind we go back to movies we've seen or flannel graphs in Sunday school or something where there were these images, you know, these little icons that were carved or made and pictures of people literally, you know, bowing down to them, which to our mind, you know, I would never do that. Right? I don't, I'm not, there's nothing in my house I'm literally getting down and bowing down, you know, to in, in worship that seems so silly to me. Nobody in our modern culture, modern day would, would do that. Well, besides the point that in India, one sixth of the world's population today, they're, they're doing that. 300 million gods, I've been there, statues everywhere. Literally, they are worshiping statues that they have made. So that's our modern world, different culture. But for us in the Western culture, we need to get out of our minds this, uh, you know, this picture of actual little gods that we are bowing down to, although that is idolatry. And of course, the Israelites were very familiar with that kind of idolatry, that, that uh, polytheism, uh, where in Egypt, where they had just come from, it was all over the place. In fact, one source told me that in Egypt, there were 44 male gods, 32 female goddesses. Some of these you probably have heard their names. Famous Egyptian gods like Ra and Anubis and Apis, whose form was a little bull. And Aaron, not so long after this, is going to copy that form of that god and all Israel is going to bow down to the golden calf. So realizing then that idolatry can be outward. It can be outward in its expression. But idolatry is always inward. It is always in my heart. And in our Western culture, while we maybe would not have an actual little God that we're bowing down to, that inward idolatry is as rampant in our culture, perhaps, as any culture. As our, this world, this vanity fair, we look around in our culture and society, there are gods everywhere if you have eyes to see what people are really giving their hearts to and really giving their time to and are really hoping that if they have that thing, accomplishment, whatever it is, value, priority, then I'm going to be happy. That is their God. And so we find then in the first command, God wasting no time. I mean, he's, oh, fathers and mothers, I'll get to that. Adultery, lying, and stealing, I'll get to that. That's down the list. 
he confronts the most fundamental and basic issue in the sinner's heart, which is who has first place? Who is at the top? Who is the ultimate affection, the ultimate love? Is it, is it God? In fact, even in this little phrase here, it's, it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And that phrase there before me, it literally means this, in front of my face. And it seems to be used in the Old Testament to describe somebody who is married to one woman, but then marries another woman while being married to the one that he covenanted fidelity love. I'm not sure if that was the right way to say that, but you know what I'm saying. Exclusive love to the one, and now I'm going to marry the other. Ladies, how does that go over? Right? Some of you wives are like, oh, my man never did that. First, I would hurt him. And then I would make his life so miserable, he would wish he was a eunuch. Uh, I would take care of that right away, right? And why would wives rightly feel that way? Because you have been the recipient of a pledge of covenantal love, of first place in your husband's heart. So that to marry somebody else, it is, it is, a, it is adultery. And spiritually, that's what God is confronting here. It is the adultery of our hearts. That, that priority list, that treasure list, that cherishing list... What I really am loving more than anything else, God says you shall have not any other entity, priority, value, treasure that in your heart you are valuing, loving more than me. You shall have no other gods before me. This is how we worship a false god. We deify something in our lives. Actually make it, now we would not use that word necessarily, but in terms of the way that we relate to that thing or that person, we are essentially making it divine to us. And within our heart, it rises to a place of affection ahead of God. That is an idol. That is a little g God. Now, other people have written brilliantly on this. Let me give you a few examples about what is a God, what is an idol. Martin Luther, a God is that to which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe him with our whole heart. As I have often said, the trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. Tim Keller wrote a, a wonderful book called Counterfeit Gods. And in it, he says a couple things. What is an idol? It is anything more important to you than God. Anything that absorbs your heart and imagination more than God. Anything you seek to give, uh, seek to give you what only God can give. Also, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life that should you lose it, your life would feel hardly worth living. I think fears are a great way to discover what the real idols of your heart are. What makes you afraid? What creates phobias? What person or thing, if it was out of your life, you suddenly would not be able to really function and your life would not have a sense of meaning and purpose? That 
Behind that fear is a God. It is an idol. Our obsessions are, I must have this or I won't be happy. All of these indicate gods in our hearts. And so we see from really these definitions that the real issue for God at Mount Sinai first was not don't make little idols. That's the second command. We'll we'll get into that next week. Don't make these little things and these little bulls and these little, you know, dogs and, and, and creatures that you bow down to. That's the outward. What I want to get at first and foremost is your heart and who you love most. Not who you say that you love. Not who you profess to love. Not who at church you look like you love most, right? We have no idolaters here. We just got done singing, of course. Not the show and not the the shell game, but the reality in my heart and soul. Who's in first place there? Now, I may look, let me just say it this way. Realize that behind even that idol, icon, thing, person, treasure, there actually is an ultimate God for us. And it's not not the career, it's not the having perfect children, it's not um, uh, success or money or anything else. The real God behind those supposed gods is me. You realize that, right? Why do I create the gods that I do? Because in my heart of hearts, I want to enthrone me. It is self. And this has been the situation for mankind from the Garden of Eden. I mean, even think about the temptation that Satan gave to Eve. Oh, I can't eat from this tree. And Satan says, really? Really? Did God really say that? He knows that if you eat of the tree, you will be like him. And Eve looked at that tree and thought, boy, I would really like to be like God. In fact, in her heart, she was thinking, I'd like to be God. And she succumbed to the temptation in Adam as well. And since that time, self and the adoration and glorification of me has been the driving reality, the driving priority of, of the whole human story. And you can look through history and see that. And you can look at your own history and your family and what creates all these problems and what motivates me to do what I do and prioritize what I prioritize. At the root of it, apart from Jesus, at the root of it is a love of self and man desiring to place himself above God or to live without God. And that might be a dawning reality to you. Why do you have the obsessions that you do? Why do you have the fears that you do? Because you love you. That's why. And God wanting to free us from the bondage of living for our own glory and really the emptiness of trying to make life make sense when I am sitting on the throne of my heart begins with the first command and says, don't put anything, anybody, especially you, ahead of me. In your heart. Now, is that love for God to do that? Is that not the grace of God to help us realize how miserable we are when we are living for ourselves and the things that ourself would want? You bet it is. Now, it sounds to us like oppressive, right? It's a command. Who is he to tell me what I can do? But God loves us enough to try to free us 
from being destroyed by ourselves. Even the ancients were doing this. You know, we look at the the ancient pantheon of gods like the Greco-Roman gods and Zeus and Apollos and Aphrodite or the ancient Near Eastern gods, Baal and uh, Asheroth and, and you read the Old Testament story, the Philistine gods and all the rest. It looks to us like maybe, you know, Zeus was a god and Aphrodite, it was really about Aphrodite. It wasn't about Aphrodite, the goddess of sex and beauty. It wasn't about Aphrodite. They didn't build the temples so that they could have places to go and worship Aphrodite. They built temples so they had places to go and have orgies. And why did they want that? Because self-pleasure, self-loves self-pleasure and creates environments for that to happen. Vis-a-vis every Friday night at the singles bar and so many other opportunities like that friends god knows us best he knows how he made us he knows how we are wired and he knows what way we enjoy maximum the 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 greatest human experience and the greatest joy and gladness that a human being can have he knows because he made us and he made us to only derive our meaning and purpose in him And whenever we replace him with something else, that seems to be the thing that will make us happy. What do we find ourselves? Disappointed and disillusioned. And in the end, frustrated and discouraged and wondering what is life all about? Now, let me give you an example of this from this week. And many of you know, I love sports and follow sports. And if you follow sports at all this week, then you know what happened to Alex Rodriguez. Now, who is Alex Rodriguez? Some of, the, some of you are whispering, who's Alex Rodriguez? Alex Rodriguez is probably, arguably, the best baseball player of this last generation. In his career, earning $325 million in salary alone, with, I think he's got millions and millions more yet on a contract. So, uh, Alex Rodriguez, if, if you were to see him, uh, I mean, he's, he's, a, he's a strapping, good-looking athlete, He lives in New York, and he's very publicly lived out a hedonistic lifestyle, enjoying what it means to be a good-looking, filthy, rich bachelor in the city of New York. Okay? That's Alex Rodriguez. Now, this week, Alex Rodriguez received a one-year suspension from baseball. By the time he comes back, he'll be 40 years old. Uh, and has admitted to steroid use, and there's all kinds of scandals and, and things that are associated with that. His reputation forever sullied. He's grouped in with all the other cheaters and liars. And here's the question I want to ask you. Would you trade places with Alex Rodriguez today? Well, I'd be good looking, which is no improvement for this crowd right now, let me tell you. I would be uh, rich. I would have the penthouse and a beautiful building in New York City. Everybody would know my name. Yeah, maybe I would trade places with Alex Rodriguez. And yet, if you were to honestly look at it, I doubt it very much. Would you trade places with Lance Armstrong as another example of this? Men who have achieved the highest level of success and fame that the athletic world has to offer and all of the things that go along with it. And yet, in both of their cases, and like we could pick out many other people, we find with them that they are in a situation where they don't have respect 
and their names have been Sully. Other examples, there's so many, but, and both of these are dead, but what about Whitney Houston and Michael Jackson in the entertainment world? They are the equivalent of Alex Rodriguez and Lance Armstrong in the sports world. Having all of the things that the rest of us common, commoners <laughs> look at and think, man, if I had that, if only I had that, then maybe I think I would actually be happy. And yet, what do we find with both of them? They had those things, and yet turning to drugs and alcohol and trying to just numb the pain of their life. And what do they and all, everybody else, what, do, what is all of this saying if we just had eyes to see it? It is saying, you shall have no other gods before me. And even the, the apparently best gods that this world has to offer when they are in first place in your heart, because we're wired the way that we are, it leads to despair. It does not bring happiness, not ultimately. Do you see it? Do you see the goodness of God to tell us this and to help break us from these obsessions with things that, in the end, don't matter? But God matters. God matters. Now, you might be thinking to yourself, boy, do I have an idol in my heart? What's a really bad thing that I'm loving more than I should? Idols are not, nor- or not, not normally. How's that for good grammar? Don't make an idol out of proper English. Um, <laughs> idols are not necessarily bad things. In fact, they are normally good things. That we turn into ultimate things for us. Good things that we turn into ultimate things. Is marriage a good thing? Yeah, but, if, but can getting married become an idol? Is having a good marriage a good thing? You bet it is. But is having a perfect marriage, can you turn that into an idol? Is having children a good thing? Yeah, but if you make that the source of your meaning and happiness, is that a bad thing? If having children, but they have to be perfect children, is, is, can, I make an, can I obsess over my, my children and, in a sense, destroy them? Yes. Is a career a good thing? Of course it is. But if my whole life is about the career, now I'm making it an ultimate thing. Is money essentially bad? No, money is not essentially bad. But if I live my life for money, I am making it an ultimate thing in my life. Is sex a bad thing? No, sex is a gift from God. But if I am living for sexual pleasure, I am making it an ultimate thing in my life which will destroy me and lead to porn and and illicit uh, sexual and all the rest. And the stories are, you know the stories about what that does in our life. And on and on we can go with things that in their right place are good. But if we make them more important than God or more important than they should be, they will destroy us because we're only made to have God in the first place. Is this making sense? I love C.S. Lewis uh, in his writings, and he makes this point uh, about exactly what we're talking about. He talks about primary things and secondary things. And he, he says that you have to have first things first in order to enjoy all the secondary things. If you ever make a secondary thing a first thing, not only do you not now enjoy the secondary thing, but you don't get the pleasure of what the first thing ought to be. 
Now, that was completely confusing. Let me illustrate it. With his illustrations, I emphasize these are his illustrations. He says, it's like pets and wives. Pets and wives. He said, is a pet a good thing? Sure, a pet's a good thing, if it's a secondary thing. But if somebody orients their entire life around the pet, and the pet becomes the focus of their hope and their meaning and what they're trusting in and and all the rest, now that pet can't produce happiness for me because pets aren't made to do that. And if I do that, I don't have the joy of having God in the first place. So I lose the first and I lose the second. Now he says, wives are the same. And I emphasize, this is Lewis's illustration. (laughs) Wives are the same. He says, a wife is a wonderful gift from God. And as a, as a secondary thing, not above God, a secondary thing can be a great joy and gladness in life. But if a man orients his entire life all around his wife, rearranges everything, she becomes the central focus of his life, all his hope and meaning and purpose and dreams and imagination, all drawn from her. And he says, now, now there is no joy in that wife because God didn't make wives to provide ultimate meaning and purpose, right? Now, some of you wives are like, I wouldn't mind my my man orienting his whole self around me. We could give that a try for a week or two. You try it and you're both going to be miserable. Okay. We have to have first things first. And God has made us in such a way that he has to be that first priority in our heart. And by having him first, we enjoy all the other good gifts in their proper place. Now, I told you in the past that every negative command has a positive command implicit with it, right? So here we have, thou shalt have no other gods before me. What does that mean then in the positive? What is God saying implicitly by saying, don't have anybody in front of me. Don't treasure anything in front of me. What is he then saying? Actually, he is saying love, treasure, and enjoy me, right? Enjoy me. And we know that there are joys and gladnesses and comforts and peace, indeed pleasures with God. That eclipse any amount of money, any amount of family, any amount of career success, any amount of power, any amount of sex, any amount of anything that this world has to offer. God is better. God is better. Your love, O Lord, is better than life, the psalmist writes. And we have got to get in our minds a foundational belief that God is the greatest reality. And that there is more joy and gladness that derives from a right relationship with God through his son Jesus than anything that this world has to offer. I can't say that's strong enough. You say, why is that so important? Because when you leave here and you go out into this world, this vanity fair around us, filled with priorities, begging us to believe that this thing is going to make me happy, we will fall in a, in a day. Unless we believe that God is better and greater and more desirable than anything else in this world. I think about our young people. You know, when you're young, the world is so fascinating, isn't it? 
There are all these things and to do and places to see and, and things to experience. And for young people, so often there is this fascination with the world. Right now, we old people, we've been there, done that. We kind of get, you know what, it's not all that great, right? But when you're a teenager, everything is so amazing. And they use that word every other clause in their sentences along with like. You know, like it was so amazing. It was just so awesome. Amazing, awesome. And as adults, we look, it's really not that amazing and awesome. (laughs) And could you please use the English language properly? But Pastor Steve doesn't on Sunday. He messes up all the time. I know I'm working on it. All right. I digress. But young people, listen to me. Listen to me. You live in a world that is begging you to believe that what it has to offer will provide the greatest happiness. And there is a whole room full of old people here, and I'll include myself in that, who, if we could tell you our stories and the things that we have seen, would beg you to realize that God is the greatest reality in life and for you to live treasuring him. And all the old people said, Amen. 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 You know, this is part of what it means to look at the world this way. I heard there's some football games today. All about the football games. All week I've been thinking about the football games. What happens in the football games will shape my gladness and happiness. For at least two days. (laughs) Let's get the service done with. Because I got to see the five hours of pregame show. This service had better not go five minutes long. Because there's four hours of TV that I've got to see before the game begins. Other gods before you? No, I got I'm I'm good. Do you see how the other commands flow from this one? You shall have no other gods before me. If I have God in first place in my heart, you know what? I don't want to make a man-made thing and bow down to it. I don't, I don't want to profane his name. I want to treasure his name and honor his name. I, I don't want to uh, de-emphasize worship. Therefore, I take a Sabbath and I prioritize God ahead of all the other things in my life. I love his authority and all the authorities that he places over me. Father, mother, police, governor, whatever it might be. Right? I don't take his image in violence. I treasure his image. I treasure the gift of sexuality and I keep it holy within marriage. I don't steal. I am generous in my giving. I don't lie because God is truth and therefore I want to be truthful with my life and with my words. And I certainly don't look at uh, a house or a wife or anything else that somebody else has and think if only I had that, then I would be happy. I don't need that thing. Why? Because God is the source of my happiness and I have him through his son, Jesus. Those are the other nine, nine commands. You get the first one right and the other ones... They just flow naturally from it. But if you don't get, if we don't get the first one right, then all the other ones become very, very difficult. Now, if you're listening properly to this, 
This message ought to be convicting and somewhat depressing. Because what conclusion can we come to when we look at a command like this? You shall never once in your entire life treasure, love, obey, adore anything above me. What do we see when we look in the mirror of that command about ourselves? We are what? Idolaters. We are, we are sinners. Of all the commands, I don't care how many times you have sadly taken the Lord's name in vain, you've bowed to some other treasure and some other priority a thousand times more. We look into this one command and we realize, I'm not a good person who God saves because I'm so wonderful. I look into this command and I realize that I have sinned against God over and over and over again. And so what should we do with that? Maybe you're here today and you're like, well, I came to hear an inspiring message and I'm being told that I'm a sinner. What should I do with that? And this is where the law does us such a great favor because as I come to understand the depth of my sin before God, now the grace of God through his son Jesus comes to us. In fact, I could ask this question. Anybody here never, never ever once disobey the first command? Please raise your hand. Oh, wait, I see one hand in the back there. That's interesting. And how should we know that you never once disobeyed the command? What's that? You came to earth to die? Okay. And how do we know that, in God's opinion, you never violated that command? What's that? He accepted your sacrifice and raised you from the dead? That's the proof that you're offering? I'd say that's pretty good proof, if that indeed happened. And by the way, what is your name? His name is Jesus, who never once his entire life, even as a boy, a child, an adult, through all the suffering and the beating and all of the in Gethsemane as he wrestled knowing what's going to happen, those moments of betrayal and all the things that he went through, not one time in all of that ever in his heart did he ever, ever prioritize, love, cherish himself more than his desire to do the will of the Father and to glorify God, not one time. And the Bible says that because he never violated this command or any other, he was therefore a qualified person to die in the place for all of us who have violated that command. And because he has done that, now God the Father has a basis by which he punished Jesus for what we did, and now he can give to us the very righteousness of Christ. So that when I believe in Jesus, the Bible says, I trust in him as my savior, that God forgives my sins and says, I will always look at you like I looked at my son. So that now by faith and the grace of God, God looks at me not as a violator of the first command, but like Jesus, somebody who always loved God with his heart, soul, mind, and strength. And if you are here and you are feeling you know what? If that is the case, then I am in big trouble. You are in big trouble. 
But there is a rescue, there is a salvation, there is a redemption that God offers for everybody who has violated any command. If you will believe, if you will trust, repent of that sin and believe in Christ and to know the grace that comes from God. And that's the, I mean, that's the foundation of our whole church. We're not a bunch of good people. You might look around and say, these people look very righteous to me. They're not. They're not. Nor am I. We're not here, good people, gathering together to admire ourselves. We have gathered here as sinners. And the core of our church is that we are great sinners and Christ is a great Savior. And because of his greatness and his salvation, if you will believe and trust, your sins will be forgiven as well. And I would I beg you to do that, even as we have, and to know this grace from God. The other important implication for this command relates to those who are, um, who are followers of Jesus. Okay? Because naturally, none of us can obey the first command. Naturally, we don't really want to, right? We want to, we want to deify ourselves. We want to enthrone ourselves, naturally. But one of the things that God does when he saves us is he gives us a new heart. And in that, with that new set of desires now, I... I actually want in my heart to glorify God and to live for his pleasure, right? This is the Westminster Catechism. First question, what is the chief end of man? The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And again, this this law is God saying, don't try to enjoy these other things. Enjoy me. And now as Christians, we have, the Bible talks about this new life in Christ, a new set of priorities and values. Psalm 1611, in thy presence is fullness of joy and at thy right hand are pleasures forevermore. So that we now as Christians, we look at the world, right? Through the promises of scripture and we come to understand that God is the greatest reality and that living for him provides for me enjoyment and gladness that the world, I mean, we hear this all the time, don't we? We hear from people that, that they, they come to faith in Christ and they say, you know what my life, it used to be about, I was, I was, man, I was obsessed about alcohol and drugs and I was into this and that. And man, I was miserable. I thought it would make me happy. It didn't. But then I came to faith in Christ. It's like the blinders came off. And all of a sudden now there's a new set of thinking and ways of, of uh, treasuring with God at the center. And the, the beauty of this is... That when we are convinced that God is the greatest reality and there's more joy and gladness in him, now my life that I live with family or job or sports or hobby or whatever it is that I have in this world that I'm doing, I can enjoy them for his sake. And one of my passions, you know this is one of the things I talk about often, is for Christians to realize that when God, that when we enjoy God first, we enjoy all these other things for his sake. And now the food and the, and the, the sport, the, the football game this afternoon, right? And my job and God's blessings financially and the richness of relationship and fellowship and community and serving the Lord and, and, and living my life with eternity's values in view and all these things. Now it enriches my life in ways that are far greater than alcohol and sex and, and uh, political power and the opinion of others and the praise of people and all these other things that people run after and obsess. God is better than that. He's better, right? And I can 
actually value him first with the new heart that God has given me, which enriches not only my relationship with God, but my enjoyment of everything else. So young people, let me go back to you a second. Can I? I just have a heart for the young people. So hard to be young. What I want you to realize is that if at this point in your life you will settle the matter regarding who really is the God of your heart and the God of your life and set a course now, like Daniel and Joseph, even Jesus, as a young person, that my God is going to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's going to be Jesus. I'm living for his glory. This life and this world that you are entering into and experiencing will be an experience of greater gladness and joy in following God than whatever your friends or Facebook or whatever else is encouraging you to believe is where it's really at. And I just, I mean, we, we see kids go to college and off the, off the wagon they go, right? Or they get into some career and off the wagon they go. And 10 years later, I see them at Easter, Hey, you grew up in the church. Where have you been? Can I love you enough, old Pastor Steve? Can I love you enough? Can you listen to me? Settle the matter now. Who is the God of your life? You say, I can't. I'm young. I'm supposed to sow my wild oats. I don't see that in the Bible anywhere. And the example of the heroes is of young people whose entire life and passion was for God. And by his grace, if you will submit and surrender your life to him, what a life to live. And we're cheering for you. We're cheering for you. And adults, by the way, how are the young people supposed to get the idea that the real thing in life is God? If they don't see us living it out, and parents in particular in the home, Maybe there's some repenting that could happen on that point. A true Christian wouldn't trade a thousand worlds and all of its fleeting joys for the new life that we have in Christ. So remember, what is man's primary purpose? What is the chief end of man? To glorify God with him first and to enjoy him forever. That's the big thing. And I pray that our church is with people, with a pastor, frankly. I've been thinking about this all week. You start thinking about this command, it's convicting, very convicting. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt enjoy me forever. It is a good command he gives. Amen? Amen. Why don't we pray together? God, we stand before you and we confess that to preach this and to amen this is one thing. To live this is another. And we confess to you that we all too often... God, we buy into the lies of the culture and the lies of the vanity fair. And we live for things that are fleeting. 
and insignificant. We obsess over them. We treasure them. We live for them. Forgive us for this, we pray. And Lord, help us to be a people with affections that are fully and wholly set upon you. We thank you that Jesus has made this possible, freeing us, Lord, from the bondage of sin, freeing us to new life in Christ. And Lord, I pray that we increasingly would be a church reflecting a love and a treasuring of you. May our Colossians 3, may we set our hearts and our eyes upon things above and not on earthly things. And may you be honored in us, we pray. And for anyone here convicted by this, apart from Jesus, Lord, I pray that you would lead them to faith. Grant it to them right now. May they trust in Jesus, their Savior, their Lord, and their friend, who by faith will free them from the bondage of sin. To you be all glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.